Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality by diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. It is often said we are at a critical juncture, a portal even. So let's take this opportunity to step back and see what we can learn from the work people are doing and to have an open conversation about some of the most pressing strategic questions as we try to build a more just world. I'm Barbara van Passen, and I'm the host of this podcast, always looking for where and how we can make change happen. And this episode today is part of a first series focusing on women's economic justice, asking the question, how can we make COVID the game changer we so desperately need? Not just to build back better, but to build differently with an economy that works for everyone and a society in which all women's work is valued and their rights are respected. Today's guest is all about the big picture, and I'm sure she will challenge all of us, and especially those like me sitting in the global north, for us to do better, to dream bigger, and to put ourselves out there if we are serious about women's economic justice. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. Today we have with us Emilia Reyes, a global campaigner and a technical activist for women's rights and gender just economy with a feminist and decolonial lens. And she's not just any activist. As a program director of policies and budgets for equality and sustainable development at Equidad de Género in Mexico, as a co-convener of some of the main women's spaces at the UN, and as a driving force behind the ambitious campaign of campaigns, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. We will ask her what she's learned and how her work has shifted over the past one and a half years of the pandemic, and what she thinks is really needed to turn the tide. We will hear why we may not need microfinance, but new macroeconomic policies and how to build power by working together. Welcome, Emilia. Thank you for making the time. It's really good to have you here. Thank you so much, Barbara, for having me here. And hello to everybody in the audience. I understand you've been doing some pretty exciting stuff. And I even saw some dancing and singing with the Spice Girls. (laughs) Can you say something about that? Yeah, well, uh, it's a group of feminist activists and we are very reverent and we really like to challenge power. So while we do very rigorous technical work at the UN and other global negotiations, we're also always confronting uh, in the hallways, in the streets, dancing and coming up with a lot of even sometimes on the red line of what is forbidden and what is not, a lot of actions that are really in a symbolic, but also in an activist way, as we call it, challenge the discourses that are happening at the UN or other spaces. So now the, the Spice Girls are having a Facebook Live every fortnight. And uh, yeah, whenever a speech, for instance, now in Guterres, the secretary general of the UN, he's talking and uh, nobody pays attention to him, really. He's not making any transformation. So we thought, well, maybe let's use it as a tune for our dances so that it's worth for anything <laughs> because we don't see any, any other impact of what he's saying. So we're having a lot of fun. <laughs> and that's important also, right? To keep some hope and energy you have to make it a bit of fun. I thought it was very inspiring and really fun to see you guys together Thank you. Uh, doing that. So thanks for that. We're going to dive into the actual interview. I'd like to ask you if you can start out by saying a little bit more about how and why you got engaged in this work. What is it that made you do what you're doing today? Yeah, you see, I was doing my master's on international relations. 
So, and I was dealing with issues of peace and security. So I went to Guatemala to an indigenous community of people who had returned to Guatemala after 10 years of being in refuge in Mexico. And they were showing me around the community. And there was a huge peak, like really, really huge, like the size of a couch. And I was like, uh, Doña Conchita, what is this peak? And the pig was looked really thin and also the skin was injured, you know, like you could tell it was very ill as well. And she said, well, you know, these were sent by the Swedish corporation. They sent us a shipment of these sheep, of these pigs. And uh, it was supposed to help us leave poverty to help us, you know, raise, the, breed them. And, uh, but you know, I was born in, in a region in Guatemala where we were in, in the hills. So we, we have no engagement. We don't know how to take care of, of pigs. And my, my husband was uh, a fisherman. So we met in the refugee camps and then we came back. So he has no idea either on how to take care of pigs. And that's happened with the rest of the community. So the first week when the pigs came, half of the population just killed them and ate them in carnitas. And uh, actually, those who tried to breed them realized that the pig ate even more than their children and the family. So it was very burdensome on them as well. So many of them died of illness because of the tropical weather and they were not ready. So this is the only pig that has remained and that has lasted. And this is because Doña Guadalupe, she lives alone and she took took care of it as a companion and but you can see it's very ill and she said something that that's what struck me the most she said had they uh, so we're very grateful for the Swedish corporation but had they asked us what we needed about facing the situation we're in we would have asked many different things that would have really helped us so here is a puzzle in which we need to feel grateful but at the same time it, it brought a lot of pain and suffering for us to see the pigs dying or, you know, uh, the effort on trying to breed them. So she was saying, I don't know why they never ask us. And that was really uh, struck the core with me. And I decided in that trip, because I was confronted with many things, I come from an urban background. So by the time I came back, I was feeling really bad about these people are continuing their reality on their poverty and also on their tools of uh, managing and surviving. So I'd like to come here and say, I have solutions, I have proposals, I can understand what you're going through. So I decided never again, I'm not going to do uh, community work. But I realized as well in that key question that there was a point in addressing public policies, the ways that those things that are coming vertically from the top down to populations could be transformed, could be improved, and it should they should be done in a totally different way. And it doesn't require either just a sole focus on national policy, but also what is the global relation and the impact that is having the north on the on the south. So that was uh, my that's my personal anecdote that really shifted the path in my life. Thank you so much, uh, Emilia. And that's an amazing story. And I'm pretty sure it's not the only one like that, right? It resonates with me as well, what you're saying. I think I went through a similar 
process ended up on a more structural level, as you will be sharing with us. Tell us a bit more about what you're doing now. So how did you shift from deciding that maybe community work was not it for you and you wanted to look at public policy? How does that play out in the work you do today and what drives you in that? Well, I'm also from a feminist from the Latin American tradition. So that means that we're always looking at the point of entry of, of inequalities. And we see two. One is the sexual division of labor, in which women are allocated more work precisely because of their stereotypical roles. And they undertake a burden of unpaid domestic and care work. I do call it burden. Some say, no, it's not a burden. It's made out of love. And I said, no, it's a burden when you're upholding two-thirds of the global economy and you're getting nothing in return, that it's a burden. And uh, so that is the first one. And just to say, uh, as opposed to that, two-thirds of the value generated in the world is generated by women, by unpaid domestic care work, they only hold 10% of the money that circulates in the world. So it's really that bad. To us, that is uh, the, the sexual division of labor is one point of entry. But the second one is also the geographical division of labor, which is also split between the global north and the global south and how there is a past of colonization that is very obvious to everybody with the formal official colonies, but it's happening now with sometimes the same practices and sometimes with new ones, but the exploitation is, is dire, just to say, just to mention that for $1 that comes in in official development assistance, $80 come out from the global south to the global north to fiscal paradises, as they're called, uh, tax havens. And uh, it's really because of the corporations and the wealthy people of the global north is, is really hoarding on, on the capital of humanity. And I just need to say it's not in those small islands. It's really New York, Ireland, London. So we have a very good mapping at this point that it's not the bad guys in the isolated islands. It's really the major capital. So we, we are also striving to, to fight that because in the end, the negative impacts of, of wealth at the global level are really increasing inequalities in the global south. And women are the ones really who are paying for the harshest impacts of all of the crisis. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, why, why does this affect women so much? Why, why is this issue of illicit financial flows, tax avoidance, debt, finance more generally, why is it a women's rights issue? Yeah, of course, because you see the sexual division of labor is not an issue that it's going to be, uh, should be addressed as a battle between the, the sexes and it's not going to be solved well just having more men doing the dishes. This is really about something that is, as we were saying, structural. So we need a redistribution of these unpaid domestic and care work by the state, by the private sector, by communities, by families, by women and men. And in that regard, the state plays a major role, not only in regulating, but also providing public services that in many occasions are the services that are mostly related to the tasks that women are performing. So health, education, social protection, but even access to water, etc. Whenever the state retreats from any task, is women the ones who are undertaking? For instance, if, if a person goes to a hospital and the hospital says we have no budget, so rather than staying here for a week, to, to recover, we're gonna send you home the next day. It's not because the person does not need the does not need the care. It's going to go home so that the family provides that care. But by family, we really mean the woman in the house. So then it's adding this burden that, as you can see, the state should be providing that that um, 
work and then it's expected of women to do that. So what we are saying is really uh, in feminist economies, th there is a phenomenon that say, women are really the shock absorbers of all crises. Whenever a crisis hits, women are stepping in to solve, um, to, to solve the, the problem. So the environmental crisis, for instance, now women are working more time to get uh, water, uh, striving more to achieve energy, etc. So it's, and even women are doing unpaid domestic and care work, but it's not only in the individual houses, it's also in the community level. So whenever there is a disaster, then women need to undertake all of these tasks or taking care of the wounded people, but also recovering the biodiversity, etc. So in the end, it's really whenever there is a gap, of the roles of the states, women need to step in, and that is happening more and more with this, as we call them, the multidimensional crisis that humanity is seeing nowadays. And just on the issue on debt and illicit financial flows, well, the state has two options to get funding. Either it charges taxes, and now, as we see, states are refusing to charge taxes to the wealthy people, so they charge indirect taxes, and those impact women the most, because women don't, don't have big um, goods, they have the small goods, and that's coming from the interest, uh, the indirect taxes. But the other way in which the states achieve funding is by getting a debt, getting a loan, and in the end, they need to pay back. So when they are implementing or let us say planning their, the expense, the budgetary expense, they need to cut down on expenses so that they can pay the loans. And usually what, where they cut down the budget is on social expenditure. It's exactly health, education and stuff. They never cut down in military. They never cut down in the budget of decision makers, which are men. And so again, you see that there is this vicious circle in which the private corporations and the wealthiest get away with everything. And women are then really carrying all the burden that states are unable to, to face. Yeah, thank you for that really good illustration of what the problems are and what the agenda should be, because it's clear that these are crucial issues if we want to address women's economic justice, something that many people would agree on, but then how to do it uh, is the next step. Can you say something? Because these are huge issues. Um, they're about global financial systems. They're, they talk about the multilateral system. Can you say something about how you are trying to address this and what you're trying to achieve in the spaces you work? Yeah, I mean, we do work from local to global. I mean, in my Mexican organization, we also do training on gender responsive budgeting and, and trying to change normative frameworks so that uh, also at the local level, national, state level, there is a technical capacity to better allocate the fundings with a human rights framework, gender equality, environmental integrity. We're also even working with gender responsive budgeting and climate change and trying to really go beyond the social budget, you know, that those that have direct beneficiary population that you will find women and men. We really want to think about what about infrastructure? What about energy? What about agriculture? Those are the big bags in, in a national budget. And we want to make sure that it's allocated, bearing in mind all of these issues. So that is one level. 
and that is also very technical. And at the global level, the technical work is also being an activist and so engaging in international negotiations such as the financing for development in the UN and now really our UNCTAD, which is the UN Agency on Trade and Development, which is about to go into a review or now in January, we will see that the least developed countries are going to negotiate a plan of action for the next 10 years. And we're trying to bring in all of these macro dimensions as well, and including the needs to reform the global north so that those that are the poorest receive proper solutions from the world and not only, you know, charity and corporations. That is one step, but the other is really trusting in the global movements. So we believe ourselves to be feminist and that is a social movement. And so we do not see ourselves as consultants. I mean, my NGO, we see ourselves as part of the feminist movement. And so what we do is constantly going back to the dialogue with the feminist movement in Mexico, in Latin America, at the global level with women in the global south. And then assessing what is it that we need, what are the urgent needs. And then also with, the, let us say, the strategic planning of the social movements, this is why we operate further. But in the past years also, it has been very challenging, but uh, really needed. I realized you cannot keep on working on silos as well even within social movements. So I've been making very strong efforts to build alliances between different movements. So it's really mobilizing with a name of solidarity between and across movements, within and across movements. So that is really a, a common learning about all of these issues that are really impacting us all and how we can find solutions together. So this is why Within the pandemic, what I did was I was thinking we need to mobilize together. Everybody's responding on their own field. Everybody's exhausted, but we really need to take a step back and work together. So this is when I came up with the idea of a campaign of campaigns, which is the major a campaign that is including all of the eight, ten macro demands that everybody in the world should be rallying around because it's impacting us all, including the environmental emergencies. And others that are more technical but are really needed, like the regulation of the financial actors. And, and at the same time, trying to build bridges with social movements to build, on the one hand, awareness raising, and on the other, learning from us to them and them, them to us. And really, another layer is just to spread awareness and information to citizens in general who are not necessarily activists, but who are also concerned about what is happening and the pandemic and all of the other crises are impacting them. So now we're also doing some awareness raising in regular population with different materials. Some are art, some are more informative and fun and light. But um, really, my main concern is that we need a complex, holistic strategy. It cannot be just simplistic and linear, not at this point in time. That's very interesting, I think. It speaks to so much also of the work that I used to do where I used to advocate a lot on women's land rights and it was often addressed as a standalone issue when obviously it was so interconnected to environmental challenges, to investment frameworks, to all kinds of work. And so I was very excited when I saw your campaign of campaigns because I think it's really needed. And at the same time, it's very challenging, I think, both at the level of bringing together movements and people working on different issues who all have their own frame and language and maybe personalities and strategies, but also towards 
policymakers who find it quite difficult to grapple with sort of the bigger picture, as policies are also often made in silos, and they might not find it very easy to know what to do when you have those macro demands. Can you say a little bit about, yeah, how that works on both sides? What are some of the challenges and how are you trying to address them in the work? Yes, totally. I mean, on the side of the movements, I really need to say everybody is giving their best. I really, in awe of admiration of all of the people in social movements, but they're really exhausted, they're drained, they're giving it all. There's a lot of desperation and there's also a lot of response just to address the immediate urgencies on the ground. And so it's been hard just to say, let us also address these macro dimensions, because for instance, If you're dealing with an extractive um, mining in your territory and you see they're depleting the, the water, they're, they're polluting the air, they're displacing indigenous peoples, there is a persecution of, of human rights defenders, women are really seeing also an increase of gender-based violence, etc., lack of access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. And you, you see the local movement struggling with all of that, and maybe some of them find successful strategies to displace destructive, but what is going to happen is that that extractive is just going to go somewhere else to cause the same impact. So to us, convincing them to say, The local level is important, but also if we take a look at the origin of the problems, we need to stand together. And of course, many of your solutions uh, and the deep knowledge you have on this can help really to address the global origin. And at the same time, let us say, deviating some of the energy to think of the bigger picture is very demanding for Marianne as well, because uh, they're really dealing with the very difficult situations. On the other hand, it to me is like, if we don't do this, then, then it's going to be a never ending cycle. They're just, we're just displacing from one local space to another, the problem. And so, Engaging in that kind of conversation has been important, but also bearing in mind the structural level of demands of many of them. So what is it that you, I mean, you've explained to us a bit about how you build capacities or uh, an advocate towards uh, UN and, and governments and, and how you try to build movements. I mean, the powers are so big. We are at a, at a crucial point in time. I mean, you rightfully point out this is an opportunity maybe also as the crises are so big. How can we use this time or how do you try to use this moment to really overcome some of these obstacles and shift power? I think this is a time of desperation. <laughs> It's really a time of desperation. And uh, I feel that especially in the global north, the citizens are not moving as I would have hoped for. There is not only a lack of awareness, there is really a lot of comfortablessness in their situation. As I was saying here in Spain, I see that people is going out, they're going out to schools again, they're taking up their lives. I think it was Kenya, I need to get back to you on that data, that it was the country that was paying the highest cost of vaccines worldwide, right? So it's really, as I was saying, not only profiting, but really partnering to get the best out of the world and leave all of the emergencies to the global south. And I would expect that people in the global north would mobilize because no matter how we people in the global south mobilize, we are not citizens. We, we cannot hold accountable the, the global 
North authorities like a citizen in the global north could do. And we don't see any mobilization in any of these issues, not even in the climate emergency, which is really striking for me because it's not enough what we see and it's really mild, really, if I can be very honest. So uh, I think we really need to do some capacity building from us movements in the global south to the global north and really change this mentality because the world is really getting into a place of, of no return. And uh, people in the global north, given that they have an immediate comfortable reality, they cannot see what is happening two days time from now. They're obliterated and we've seen that the rise of nationalistic responses have been praised in the global north. Oh yes, they're taking care of us because we have taken care of all of the poor people. So why are they here? And you know, so it's really concerning and I don't think there has been this structural consideration in the global north and that is a demand I have to, towards the, the global north. And that is one thing that I believe I don't see how that can happen now, especially because in the global north, there is no sense of emergency. And in the global south, the more the contradictions expand between global north and global south, the, the less I think there is a possibility to act together. But that is there to be seen because rather I think, I think the sense of desperation is going to help us mobilize a bit more. You mentioned it's a real time of despair and we have to be also careful maybe on this idea that it's an opportunity. We live in an opportunity. Of course, we want things to change fast and structurally. What gives you hope in these times? What do you see happening that we can build on? You were mentioning about it a little bit just in the previous comment. Going into an international space, you meet the brightest and the most brilliant people all the way from all over around the world and they're just in the same room and you are torn between should I get their autograph or should I just say my ideas you know it's like and it's this is daily life people but they're so awesome and doing also I'm pretty sure it happens to you and everybody in the audience outside when they talk to activists or people doing local work on the ground. It's something really remarkable about the drive, the energy, the hopes, and even the type of questioning they make of us, our ethical decisions in life, that I feel so privileged of getting the opportunity to work with them every day, either virtually, nationally, globally, in person, or whatever. There are some activists that I just read about their work, and I feel super inspired, and they don't know that I'm admiring them. But uh, just is really privileged because sometimes I also feel like I don't know how would a life without activism would be because I feel at least I'm being useful. You know, I feel like I don't feel the despair of and I don't know what to do with this. And I feel hopeless. I, I'm always with this drive. and However bad things are, I'm always thinking at least I'm doing something to change things. And I know I can trust all of the other thousands and millions of people that are also trying to do something out there that I get really inspired and even officially you get to meet a lot of people who have really good will you see them doing impossible things uh, also in that those official positions and let me tell you the UN human rights reporters on debt on water on debt on poverty you know they're doing such a fantastic works nobody's paying attention but to us they're like rock stars you know they're like they're releasing this report and everybody runs to read it and it's so useful and it's so refreshing to see that from the official point of view there are 
also people, let us say, infiltrating or supporting or really learning and getting from what the movements are saying and bringing, making an effort to bring that into official spaces. That I think that is an inspiration and a drive to keep on, on working every day on, on these things. That's really good to hear. And I'll have to make sure that the UN special operators hear this as well. So they continue <laughs> their, their rock stardom. Exactly. Uh, because it is important to have those people that build the bridges and that do the work. Also on the inside, uh, connecting to the movements. Thank you for that. What are some of the questions on your mind that maybe you want to reflect upon more or that you would like to support from others on? So it is a huge tension, always being a bridge, always being a bridge between the local and the global, between the technical and the mobilizing, and also between just myself being urban, but being from the global south. And so I'm challenging the global north, but sometimes it is true that the global north, many colleagues are doing all of this technical work in the G20 and the G7. And maybe there are some points of connections that I don't have with a local mobilizer at the community level. We're talking more technically, and that is a code that I understand. So being in the middle always without finding a, a fixed position is always bringing a lot of questions about why are you doing what you're doing? Perhaps I just should stick to one. Maybe I should find an expertise just on budgetings or finance or laws or mobilizing and now I'm finding myself doing campaigning which I never thought I would do and I feel inadequate in all of those fields because I'm not an expert on anything but there is value in the bridging and in being in this particular middle space that is nowhere really and um, that those are the questions I, I, I find myself asking myself sometimes. Should I be useful in finding a, a niche rather than standing in between everything? Um, sometimes I, I think, but someone else should be doing this and I don't see anybody, so I should hold the fort. So yeah, those are the, <laughs> the issues that keep me awake, wondering about what I'm doing. Thank you so much for, for sharing these reflections. I think it's important also to think about these questions. And I think many of us yeah. do. So maybe we should just be having that conversation a little more, right? Okay. Um, one of the reasons for doing this podcast is exactly these kind of questions of where can I make change happen? Where can we make change happen? What is our role? I think it's very obvious that there is a, a big role for bridge builders in this very time. I also find a very important conversation about being, let us say, trying to find a change from within and trying to build change from without. I Let me tell you, I think that's one of the most interesting debates I've had about being called a traitor to social movements, just because you're trying to change a policy, uh, dealing with decision makers, being inside the offices of an institution or the Congress or attending the UN and uh, people from outside is why are you betraying us why aren't you in the march out here in the streets with us or why aren't you holding you know the river while the military is coming those are tough questions and in a way they're right right like it's like uh, why are you privileging the privilege for medium and long term rather than emergency and on the other end having the peace of mind on saying 
I'm doing this because I'm aware you're out there and uh, I hope my work is having a larger impact so that not only you don't have to be there, but also many people on the local level don't have to do that ever again. So it's, uh, but it's tough. And I think this is the type of issues that in a safe space, such as this podcast should be bringing to a deeper understanding and exchanges of views about the multi of actions in different spaces rather than just deciding this is the best one or this is the best one. But it is tough when you get confronted with emergencies such as that one and uh, you have to make a decision and I'm going to stick to where I am even if there is a despise for the technical and the official and the insight. I still feel there is value in doing that. Yeah, thank you for raising that. And actually the inside-outside question will be a core focus of our next series on climate justice. So watch that space because it is one of the major strategic questions, but also one that yeah. really raises debate and disagreement and splits within civil society. So it's important to see if we can bridge some of those groups or at least build a little bit of understanding between. Thank you again for that as well. So thank you for being with us, Emilia. And thank you for reminding us of the importance of the big picture, the macro, the responsibilities of the global north in really changing the system and how we should be in solidarity and working together. I wish you all the luck in the great work that you do. And I'll definitely be following up on the campaign. We'll also be sharing some more resources in the show notes for people to follow up. Uh, maybe they want to join, maybe they want to support, or they just want to express their solidarity. So thank you everyone also for listening today. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe and tell a friend or two. As I said, resources will be shown in the show notes and we are looking forward to see you back on this show. Thank you.